I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick it off with the week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion. And then finish up with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, we will be reviewing for our main event, Antebellum, starring Janelle Monet, the sort of Civil War, sort of horror movie. Then, film faves, we'll be counting down not favorite movies, but our favorite directors of all time as part of our aftershocks of going backwards through time. So that's a big one. That'll be interesting. That was definitely a Herculean task, and we will talk more about that a little bit later but first, let's get into the week in review. Shanna, why don't you kick it off? As I understand it, you saw or completed a season of a TV show recently. I did. I had an opportunity to binge you season two. And I found it a complete and utter waste of my time. Oh, dear. So I found this show to be incredibly frustrating. It gives a little and then... It takes away a lot. It's like we go one step forward and five steps back. I want to actually say ten, but I have to try and control my anger. Oh, wow. I didn't know quite where the show was going. Then I got one or two things about it right. And yay, I was happy about that. But then the ending just pissed me off royally. So, in conclusion, it's a frustrating show. They have been renewed for another season, and I'm further irritated by that because I I guess the storm that is Joe will never end. Why did I watch it? I, I, I don't really know. I think this show uses the psychopath to illustrate different cages we put ourselves in, whether they be physical or emotional. So if you want me to really dig, there's that little seed, but it's not super well illustrated or executed. This show is more frustrating than anything else, so I don't recommend it. Two questions. Sure. Let's back up a second. For those who aren't familiar, can you refresh people's memories of what this Mm. show is about? This is a show about a damaged male who is what appears to be trying to find love that works for him and be reciprocated. But it never quite works out with him because he's a psychopath. He's like a serial, not a serial killer. He's like a serial stalker controlling freak. Is that something you know right off the bat in season one? Oh, yeah. There's no Fifty Shades of Grey about it. It's like, very, <laughs> you know, where they're like, oh, but it's a rich guy that's da-da-da-da-da. No. You can tell that this person is dangerous. Okay. I think within the first episode, if I recall correctly. If not by the first, by the second. Okay, so it's not necessarily a spoiler and to say that. No, and, and the, then- ad- the advertising paints him as this kind of crazy person my second question was season one 
you saw season one. Did you like season one and it just kind of fell off the cliff with season two? I think I liked it at the time. Look, I liked where season two was going because he was having a little bit of a character arc. But then it went all to shit in the last 20 minutes of the last episode. Mm. So I was like, you just undid everything you had me follow. The last episode of season two? Of season two, two. yeah. So that is you on Netflix. Not recommended by me. (laughs) (laughs) Just to clarify, that is all for your weekend review, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... I've watched some cartoons here and there, but that's about it. And then also, to be clear, you've you've had an accident and you haven't been really allowed or able physically to watch any much since. My viewing time is very limited. And after I had binge watched you, I was like, I don't know what to trust now. (laughs) So Mm. it's kind of this little thing. I mean, we did watch Toy Story Terror. Yeah. I don't know if you want to speak about that. Eh, I I don't know. The the whole Toy Story thing's been sullied for me. Uh, by Toy Story Four, I would have been happy if they just kept with these shorts because they're lovely and stuff. But I don't really have much to say about that per se. But you know, they're enjoyable shorts, and I yeah, I the shorts are definitely pristine, in my opinion. Mm. So I have also been watching a netflix show i didn't know you were well when you were working pre-accident i did start you know trying to figure out what to do with my time i started watching dead to me on netflix which i think it's finished its second season uh i think the second season dropped several months ago Anyway, I'm finally catching up to it. It's one of those things that's been on the queue for a while. Want to check it out. Watched season one and only started season two. I will speak to season one here. This is a series that stars Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate. It is a series that is best to be brief when it comes to the synopsis because it starts revealing things uh, starting with the end of episode one. Basically, it is about these two women who meet at a grief, uh, what do you call, a grief support group. They both are grieving over the death of loved ones. Christina Applegate plays someone who is quite coarse and severe and very bitter about the death of her husband, which was a sudden death. In, an, in a car accident and it was a hit and run car accident and she is very upset about not essentially having a finger to point to blame uh, and held responsible for the death of her husband because it was a hit and run accident uh, so you know she's very angry and bitter uh, linda carlini plays a character who's a little more earthy and a little more into like you know, like she'll smudge a room and and which is to spiritually cleanse a room and other oh, things yeah. like that. Oh yeah, sage you know? it up. Yeah, things like that. And so they befriend each other, and it's basically about like what you learn about these characters as they get to know each other, and 
I'm trying, you know, even trying to explain what themes the show goes into risks going into spoiler territory. So I'll say that is it's not a show that I necessarily love. It didn't hit me like oh right away like oh my gosh this is amazing. And it wasn't a show that like took four episodes for that revelation to hit me either. It's a show that I like. I think it's interesting. I think it's fine. I think it does certain things like oh okay here we go. But then it 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 kind of sidesteps where you think it's gonna go with certain situations. So it does avoid predictability, and it is fairly clever and it is fairly interesting. Season two does seem to tie two characters together with a death of another character, hmm. but it I, I'll see how it goes, but it seems like it might have jumped the shark with a somewhat soap operian reveal, so to speak, of a, of a character in the beginning of season two. The, it's, 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 I won't I won't reveal what it is here, but it is a kind of trope that you hear most commonly associated with a soap opera. And um, I'm not sure I can go along with it. It seems like an excuse mm. to be able to hang on to a particular cast member mm-hmm. and be able to play with that particular cast member in future episodes again, and just in a different way. And I'm not sure I can. I hate it when shows do that. Like when they kill someone and then try to bring them back in some way. Yeah. Uh, what there is a show that we've watched. Oh no, uh, you don't watch this, but this is us kind of is dangerous in dangerous territory of this, where there is a really great character, a very central character, that is in that show that it eventually you learn like dies, and you think the way the show is moving forward. You think, okay, once you get to that character's death, that's going to be the end, the last we see of that character. But they keep finding different ways to keep that actor around. Mm. And and it's just a kind of thing like that. It's, I don't know. It feels like job security for the sake of job security rather than something that feels organic. Well, I'm, I'm all for job security, but... <laughs> You know, coming back to stories, I mean, isn't it a way, for This Is Us, isn't it a way of trying to deal with grief and trying to deal with memory? It's a way of dealing with a lot of things in that case. In the case of going back to Dead to Me, the show Uh I'm talking about, it, it, hmm, it, feels gratuitous and it's not a concept the way they do it it's not a concept that was introduced in any way in the season one so so it's this new technique they're playing with you could say that yes so there was no foundation it's okay dead to me i think a lot of people would enjoy it feel free to check it out it's on netflix next thing i saw was one of our one of the things we didn't get to catch up with before we recorded our Chinese episode, our favorite Chinese movies. It was sitting on top of the TV. I finally knocked it out. Infernal Affairs. It is the movie that Martin Scorsese remade as The Departed. And it's like, okay, it takes the concept of, okay, you've heard of the police having a mole in the mob. 
right? To try to catch, you know, and, and, and right? But what if the police had a mole in the mob and the mob had a mole in the police at the same time? <laughs> eh? That eh? sounds very exciting. And kind of like um They're both trying to figure each other out, find out oh. who who's the mole in each thing, right? And so they keep like missing their paths, right? Try to try to identify each other, right? Because you know, if they do, one will get the other one killed. Uh, go ahead. What were you saying before I continue? Oh, I was gonna say it's kind of like the Americans or any kind of movie that deals with the Cold War. Oh, where there is it the Cold War with the Russians? Yes, uh, and the Americans, where they're trying to figure out. Well, there's a mole here. There's a mole here. A mole from this side. A sleeping agent from this side, you know. So I, I kind of like that concept. It's a lot of fun and very exciting. You know, I think you, you have you seen The Departed by Martin Scorsese? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a long time ago. Do you though. remember it very well? Do you remember your opinion of it? No, no, it's been a long time, so it's hard, and I and I'm suffering from a concussion. Right. So it's very hard for me to access my files of memories. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Solid film. For whatever reason, it's, it's criminally the film that finally got Scorsese the best director Oscar. Obviously, he deserved it for many movies, many, many movies before that. Uh, but um, Infernal Affairs is also very good. Of course, it's the originator of the story. I would say that if you can hunt it down check it out because it's worthwhile and it probably would have made my favorite chinese movie list had i had been able to have seen it in time and i think shanna you probably would have agreed as well because it is interesting it is it is tense at times and it's very well done there are some flourishes that are a little a little sh- syrupy a little schmaltzy or a little sentimental that i think hold it back from being as good as the departed i think martin scorsese was able to slightly improve on this story with the departed so um that is a better film marginally but the infernal affairs is really cool and very enjoyable and i highly recommend that Chinese film. Lastly, I caught up with a movie from last year called Waves. Now, this is a film that is by director Trey Edward Schultz, who I'm sort of familiar with because I saw his film from a couple years back called It Comes at Night. I I haven't seen his other celebrated film Krisha, which I understand is a little bit better. But now I've seen Wave, so I've seen his last two films. It Comes at Night was, was fine. I think I talked about it on the podcast a couple years ago when I did see it. Mm-hmm. I recall, but I don't remember what it was about. Uh, it, that one was kind of a post-apocalyptic, you know, very wary of anybody that comes by the house kind of thing, right? And that was fine. I thought it was fairly good. I didn't. I wasn't over the moon about it. Waves is a different story, entirely. <laughs> so, 
what is that story? How do I explain it? Because it is a film that is divided into two halves. And I think the best way to describe it is to say it is about two characters that are tied together by one tragedy. And I think like when I understand that that's what the movie is and what it's going for after seeing the whole picture, I'm able to appreciate it better. That said, the first half, the first, which follows one character, is very tough. And I watched a Q&A with the cast, which, also, which includes Lucas Hedges, Taylor Russell, Kelvin Harrison Jr., and Sterling K. Brown. And Sterling said he totally understands how some people, like, they'll watch the first half and they're checked out. They're like, no, I can't do this. This is too tough. Because you're following a character who I absolutely hated. Like, he is very unlikable. He's a total jerk. And he behaves monstrously to his girlfriend. Very tough movie for you to to go into, Shannon. Uh, And I'm glad I watched it on my own. But what redeems the movie is the second half. And this idea of this event and and how they're mirror images these two halves of each other these characters and their relationships are kind of mirror images of each other and so it's an interesting film if you can get through the first half but do kind of brace yourself it is no picnic to get through the first hour Um, but the second hour is is interesting it's a little more positive it's it's so I give the film probably because of all that I, I, a seven out of ten. I don't praise it as much as some critics did when it came out during festival season a year ago. <laughs> but you know, if you want something that's challenging, that's not necessarily something that's easy to digest, then give Waves a shot. Be aware, it's not a smooth pill. So that's Waves, and I think that does it for my Week in Review. Now it's time for our Week in Review. Shanna, the other night, we went to a -a once-in-a-lifetime sort of event. Well, apparently it's like once-in-a-decade. Almost. Once-in-a-decade event. Maybe once every 20 years. So pay attention. So why don't you tell everyone what that was and what that experience was like for you? Well, it was our son's birthday, week, month, you know, however however you celebrate it. And would you know it, at the theater for its 40th anniversary was Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Which is very exciting because I don't think that I had ever seen that in the theater. When I was maybe 9 or 10, somewhere around that age, the three movies had cut the three that matter the most, the most, came to the big screen. And so my brother got to have, we're like about a month apart. And so he got to have his birthday party for one Star Wars movie. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. And then I got to have my birthday party at a Star Wars movie too, which was pretty fun. And this was a really cool experience. There's nothing can compare 
to, you know, watching Star Wars on a big screen with great sound and popcorn and the ones you love near you. Um, it was it was really lovely because, you know, every time that you and I go watch Star Wars, I'm, I'm really grateful for my brother introducing it to me because I don't think that we would be having a discussion, be together if mm. Star Wars hadn't entered my life. And so every time Star Wars starts, I either want to give you a kiss or hold your hand. And it was so sweet because here's the power of this this franchise. I grabbed your hand for a quick squeeze oh, yeah. in the and our our son decided you know usually he wants to sit on your side but he wanted to sit in the middle and he reached out and he grabbed our hands too and mm-hmm. i put my hand on top of his and then he put his hand on top of yours and it was just i have to mention the sweetness that can be attached to star wars i have to take the time to mention that because no matter what you're going through no matter if it's covid or teenager hormone imbalances you know natural imbalances star wars can still bring you together Mm. did you want to talk about what you liked about seeing it yeah i'll talk about the experience i would say that even though it's a fairly moderately paced film by today's standards i found myself caught up in the thrills of the film, particularly in the first half. I totally jumped. Yeah. Being on the big screen really has an impact. And it was very cool being able to see it again in the theater uh, for the first time for me in 23 years. Mm. And it was, it was a really, it was a really fun and, and great experience. And of course, like I've seen the entire Skywalker saga. So there's certain things that I can tie together and certain things I'll notice, you know, this time. And it's, uh, it was a really great time. Now it's being billed as the 40th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back. It's not exactly... Oh, that here comes film. pushing up the glosses. Right? Now, it's actually the special edition, I see. unfortunately, from 23 years ago. Okay. Not the original <laughs> film from 40 years ago. So there is there is that. But I will say that of the original trilogy special editions, this one's the least garish. It's the least garish of the three, mm. the the additions, the modifications that Lucas did, because pretty much all he did was he replaced the original actor who played the Emperor uh, before Ian McDiarmid. Ian McDiarmid actually played the, the Emperor in Return of the Jedi and then every single film after, okay? And, you know, you could kind of tell that... They were trying to feel out the Emperor character. If you go back and, and rewatch the original cut, mm. theatrical cut of Empire Strikes Back. So they replaced with Ian McDiarmid the one transmission that there is of the Emperor with Darth Vader. The other major change is Cloud City. Oh. And, you know, I mean, like, 
it's actually like George, the whole thing. Yeah, it's actually George oh. Lucas's vision of what Cloud City should be, be that he couldn't do in 1980. So all the pan in shots and everything in the background, everything you see in the background what through the windows. What about the interiors? No, the interiors okay. are sets, right? But like anything you see through the windows and oh. any any exterior, um, what do you call that? Establishing shots. Yeah. All of that with an actual huge city. That's all CGI from the special edition. Now, it actually I, I looks gotta good. say I really like that. Right. I I thought it was pretty seamless. Right. I I loved it. I will agree with you. I will say that Empire Strikes Back Special Edition is the least garish of all the special editions. I mean, New Hope, you have the scene with Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt that just does not work. And there's a few other things. And Hunt, Return of the Jedi have some mm-hmm. things, you know, like mm-hmm. the Sarlacc Pet and some things that don't work. But in Empire, it's really just, you know, fleshing out. Sometimes Cloud City looks a little plastic, a little plasticky. But mostly it works and it is beautiful. So there is that. But I, I can't tell you enough. Like I was I was like it takes a while before you notice anything that is actually a change from the original cut in this film. And the whole time I'm like, are we I'm like in anticipation. I'm mm-hmm. like, is this actually the original? The original cut? Did they actually do the forty year old cut? <laughs> and and is that what I'm watching for the first time in the big screen? Because like I wasn't born until a few months after Empire Strikes Back originally came out, I think. So, but it was still a really great experience. And it was a really great experience for the family. So, look, I mean, my brother had the movies playing on repeat in his bedroom. And I would come in for the good parts, the parts that I really loved. Mm. And so I guess I just forgot how awesome this film was. Actually sitting down, it just shows you how important it is to go to the movie theater, to actually sit down, not have distractions, Mm -hmm. just because you've seen it a million times, and just really be with the film. I forgot how smart Luke is without the Force. He's a really Mm -hmm. intelligent guy and such a great character. And Han and Leia's thing, like Han is always baiting Leia, I feel into taking things to the next step and mm. um i thought that that was interesting and then chewbacca how like rabid he gets at times yeah with yeah. his with his anger and frustration which is particularly amazing. that lando yeah so i really i really enjoyed the experience and i i hope we get to see why don't they just do it every five years <laughs> 10 yeah. years is good but well you know the 50th anniversary over the next milestone i will say it is a great film from a plotting perspective it is really well done and it is it is a great film from a plotting perspective Mm. like it it plants these seeds these foreshadowed seeds throughout to reveals in the end of the film in the next film it it does a really great job from a plotting perspective is it the greatest star wars film ever made no i will say it's the second greatest because it is so well plotted but like the last jedi is is the greatest because it isn't uh, isn't just about the plot it's also thematically rich and also it also tried pushing the series in different directions and stuff and of course we've talked a lot about that but yeah 
it was interesting to go through this experience and have it reaffirm that, yes, from a plotting perspective, this is a great film, uh, but it doesn't offer a whole lot more outside of the the thrills of the plot and and the set pieces, you know, in terms of themes and stuff to chew on. But if you can go see it, if you have it playing at a theater, granted, it's your call how comfortable you feel going to a theater. But if you can and you feel comfortable enough, we highly recommend you you go and, and uh, book a seat. I will say that there were more people in the theater for Star Wars than there were for Tenant and X-Men. Um, we New had... Mutants. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. X-Men New Mutants. Yeah. And mm. it, it was interesting. We had... The three of us in the middle of that one row, two people on the one end and two people on the other end, and then about 12 people in our section and 12 people in the upper section. So pretty full, all things well, considered. So we're talking about about two dozen or so people. Yeah, but like yeah. coming back out and getting things done, that's a pretty full theater. Yeah. I, I hope it gets better. Everything. I hope everything gets better. Well, that is the week in review. It is time to move on to the main event, which is our review of Antebellum. to fulfill your every need. Wherever you were before, that's over. That's over. You are my only way out of here. We must choose. I'm only wisely. And that is from the trailer to Antebellum. Now, when I usually I say that's from the trailer to a movie, uh, you've heard generally the entire trailer. Uh, this might be a different case where I you might have only heard a part of the trailer. The reason for that is because the trailer for this movie kind of tells the movie's story backwards. So I don't recommend checking out the trailer. I don't recommend reading any synopses about this movie because it kind of tells the story and, and spoils the movie. Now, typically, you know, fairness, our guideline is if it's in the trailer and in the first 20 minutes of a movie, then it's all fair game for us to discuss before we get into spoilers. I, I don't know about you, Shanna, but I don't necessarily feel comfortable with that in this case. We will be treading as lightly as we can, treading even more carefully than we did with Tennant. So what is what is Antebellum about? Well, I will say it is about a slave somewhere in the south, like Vermont or somewhere, uh, is 
at a plantation and trying to not only survive, but also figure out a way of escape. This movie stars Janelle Monet, Jenna Malone, Kiersey Clemens, and Gabourey Sidibe. I had thought that we had seen in some marketing or something saying that this film had something to do with Jordan Peele, be it an executive producer or what have you. That is not the case. The poster actually credits saying that it's from the producer of Get Out and Us. I can say that this movie was written and directed by the duo Gerard Bush and Christopher Rentz, who this is their directorial debut. Previous to this, they had pretty much just made music videos. And they wrote the script as well. So here's how we normally do our reviews for those who aren't familiar. What we typically do is we like to start with the good, what we liked about a movie, what worked for us. Then move on to the bad. What flaws were there? What what didn't work for us? What was shit about a movie? Then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad before moving on to spoilers and final thoughts. So, Shanna, I believe you were looking forward to this movie when it was going to originally release, I think, in like April or sometime because of the pandemic got delayed and then eventually released VOD, which is how we saw it. Did the movie live up to your anticipation? And whether or not that's the case, what was the good about Antebellum? So anticipation of a horror film i'm always very wary when it comes to horror the horror genre i i sometimes i'm going to get something really cool sometimes most of the time i'm not even going to be able to handle the movie i'll have to mute it and put on subtitles so this movie made me horribly uncomfortable from the first minute mm-hmm What I loved about this film was its cinematography, how I kept guessing and thinking I knew what was what. Uh, At the 23-minute mark, I had you pause because I wanted to take down, okay, 23 minutes, I figured it out, Uh, (laughs) and and I hadn't. You were wrong. (laughs) I was wrong, and, and because I was wrong, it that alone was pretty horrifying (laughs) so you know there's there's some messaging here that kind of just drives home what microaggressions are and that was that was pretty cool but really i loved the lighting cinematography and the best part of this whole film was really chanel uh she is amazing i want her to have every role she's ever wanted uh because she has just got such a wonderful presence my first exposure to her was hidden figures and it was hard for me to connect with her but then every other film she's been in has been quite extraordinary um, with her performances especially harriet i loved her in harriet what welcome to marwin that's not really her fault. <laughs> I don't really. Uh, who was she in Hidden Figures? Uh, oh, Mary Jackson. I do apologize. 
what a wonderful person mm. yeah um so chanel is wonderful and i look forward to seeing more and anything she does and touches i would love to see i do agree janelle monet is extraordinary in this film she in a way has to play two different shades let's say during the course of this film those who have seen the movie know exactly what i mean by that and she she handles it very very well Uh, moonlight was my first introduction to her and i felt like I should know who she is at that time. I don't like I'm out of step with music. You know, she's a she's a singer. She's a musician and she's got this successful music career that I'm completely oblivious to. So I didn't know her when I first saw her in Moonlight. And I I haven't seen Hidden Figures, but she is often praised in that film. And then, you know, I think Harriet and Welcome to Morrowind's the only other thing I've seen with her i think you've seen homecoming season two right oh god yes you know i know we always like focus on movies but her in that tv show was just amazing and i it'll definitely make you want to see more of her if you watch that i think she is a force to behold she she is so commanding her presence on screen she you she just demands your attention and she will hold that attention she carries this film very well she can carry she can carry a film absolutely she is a star she can only go up from here i do think she is a strength of the film i also think that another strength of this film is the score i'm going to look up the composer right now while i talk but the score is one of the best scores of the year and in particularly the piece you hear at the beginning and the end of the film it is uh, quite beautiful and powerful i think the score is by roman gian arthur irvin if I'm understanding correctly, I'm not familiar with that composer, uh, but it, it, it is great. I think also the cinematography by Pedro Luque, who is a, uh, a DOP I am not familiar with, is beautiful at times, particularly on during the scenes on the plantation. Uh, he's a Uruguayan. Uh, cinematographer and he did such films as don't breathe girl in the spider's web and uh, many other things uh, that i'm just quickly breezing through here that i don't recognize or know Uh, but very solid uh, cinematography as well in this film i think it looks good i think it sounds good i think it's carried by a strong actress I think the first five minutes of the film is some of the best filmmaking of the year. It is an amazing tracking shot that goes through this plantation. And it's so well choreographed and is just very well orchestrated. 
And when it's combined with the score, it is a beautiful piece, just those first five minutes alone. Is there anything you want to add, Shanna? Well, I, I, I want to be very careful with what I say. I don't want to spoil anything. As you had said, this is a very spoil he- spoiler-heavy film. Yeah. But there is that, if I can, the first five minutes of this film, you're right, it's it's stunning. There's this beautiful light that happens, this golden mm. sunlight. And we're following a little girl dressed in yellow, Mm-hmm. running in greenery and you know the green is this symbolism of healthy earthy type stuff and uh, yellow is is a very idyllic color but we start with her and we end those five minutes with a woman in green and there's this stunning golden light on her face but as things turn dark that golden light completely disappears from her Mm. and we're left in this cold blue shadow scene. And it's just such a perfect example of how lighting can be and the lack of light can be used to push the story forward Mm. i think that's why those first five minutes are so amazing because you have the score the lighting the symbolism of color happening with what the what everyone's wearing Mm -hmm. color wise and it's it's just so stimulating and, and beautiful and terrifying at the same time so now that we talked about this idyllic yellow to green transition and 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 well, idealism to terror. Speaking of terror, what did you not like about this film, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot. That okay. there's <laughs> Well, here's the thing. The yeah. first five minutes is so great. Yeah. And the film never is as good again as those first five minutes. This movie is plotted in such a way it is very third act dependent in the sense that you have the first act and the second act that is essentially setting the stage and in in a way and you need the third act to bring it all together and bring it on home which is essentially like the last 20 to 30 minutes of the film and it doesn't We can talk a little bit more about the third act in spoilers, but the movie lost me with the third act. Every stupid decision that could (laughs) be made Mm -hmm. is made. There is a prop that becomes very important towards people's choices that ends up actually making no damn difference in the end and you know there's other things like in the second act there is a character that goes into someone's home so to speak or dwelling so to speak in the second act and does some things and that never seems to make sense or go 
anywhere that makes sense. Again, we can talk about that better in spoilers, but... Yeah, it must be my concussion, but I have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> I will make it clearer later. The middle, basically, the middle of this movie doesn't make much sense. And then the movie opens with a quote, and I can't remember. I apologize. Oh, I've got it for you. Oh, you've got the yeah. quote. Very good. The past is never dead. It is not even past. Do you, and who is that by? Oh, no, I don't have that. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. It is so on the nose. It is. It couldn't be more on the nose, that quote. And for reasons that can be mentioned in spoilers, uh, a lot of what does not work about this movie, of course, requires a spoiler discussion. But this movie just does not get as good as the first five minutes at any point. Which is a shame because you have a really great central performance from Janelle Monet. It just needed to be in a better movie. Apparently, it's by William Faulkner. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can understand that, and I, I hear what you're saying. And we've looked at a couple reviews online too, and I can some- after the fact. Yeah, after the fact, and I can somewhat understand where they're coming from too. I. I personally didn't have a problem with how the acts were split and and what they involved. There, there were parts that made me furious. Like you can see in my notes, I'm like writing, what the hell is she doing? But that's part of the horror movie experience, isn't it? They, they mm. always make, they always do something that you think is stupid that, that you would not do if you were in that situation. All the more reason for it, for the writing, to be smart enough to avoid that. That's fair. Sure. <laughs> Was there anything you didn't like about the movie or didn't work for you? Because that doesn't sound like the, you had the same experience. What I didn't like about the film is not the same as you. You know, you took it and you looked at it as a film and you were like, as a film, this is what I do not like about it. But as a film... I didn't really have a a problem with it that I can talk about right now. You know, a movie about a slave or slavery Mm -hmm. or racism Mm -hmm. or aggression Mm -hmm. or white supremacy, it, it all makes me uncomfortable because it's like, well, that's horrible Mm -hmm. and that's not right and... Well, that's not right. That's not okay. <laughs> Let's not. Okay. The subject is really hard for me to sit through, but at the same time, these movies are still being created because there's still issues that need to be resolved in humanity. So because this is one of those films where you're trying to keep up and I personally was trying to guess what was happening the whole time, like that was the experience for me. I and I've only seen it once. I think it would be good for me to watch it again, but at this point I don't really have a problem with the film. Do you think it's a great film? I think it's a good film. I think great and awesome are the scale and I think good is where it's at. Do do you think the good outweighs the bad? Yeah, I think ultimately the good outweighs the bad. What do you score the film? Maybe a 6. A 6 out of 10. Yeah. Okay. I don't think the good outweighs the bad. 
Already? Um, yeah, okay. no, I really don't. This movie is almost a mess. The more and more I think about it and mm. talk it out, and we'll talk it out a little bit for a few minutes shortly here. Uh, but yeah, I I give the film, you know, I want to give the film a 5 out of 10, but the more I think about it, it's like it's really just the score, the first five minutes, the cinematography and and, and Janelle Monet that are the, the good and the highlights of the film. So I, I actually don't think I can say in any conscious that it's even balanced in that sense. So I give the film a 4 out of 10, actually. So let's spend a few minutes getting really into our thoughts on Antebellum, talking some things out and and getting into the reasons why things worked or didn't work for us. If you haven't seen the film, skip ahead, look at the timestamp, skip ahead to our film fave segment. If you have seen the film, Stick with us. Join us in the spoiler section here. Maybe you'll hear some things that you agree with. You're like, yeah, right on. Or maybe you'll hear some other thoughts that you that hasn't occurred to you. But here we go. Spoilers for Antebellum starting now. All right, Shanna. What couldn't you say before that you can't say now? What's your defense of this movie? Uh Man, I guess my defense of this movie is basically the the symbolism of color and how it transitions to the second act and then to the third act. And maybe everything in between is what's a mess with this. You know, we spoke about the first five minutes, the girl with the yellow dress. In this beginning of the second act, Janelle's own daughter in, uh, well, Van- is it Vanessa? No, it's Veronica. Veronica's daughter in the first, in the second act is wearing a yellow dress too. Okay. And I thought that that was an interesting link. Let's um, take a step back and explain what the start of the second act is. Sure. She wakes up in a beautiful bed, white sheets, very... Modern times. Modern times. Yep. It's calming. Modern. She has her husband right next to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give a kiss. There's beautiful artwork on the walls. It's mm-hmm. very well put together home. And um, her daughter runs in and jumps on the bed. And uh, Veronica is definitely this uh, woman in a leadership position, an academic leadership position, and does talks so she she has a Skype meeting, a Skype session it's of some sort. It's horribly with uncomfortable. With Jenna Malone, who we had previously seen all as the wife of the owner of the plantation, right? And so yeah. we're kind of off our footing because we're like, oh, wait a minute. So what's going on here? Because, like, we just spent time in the past, and now we're at the present, and, like, similar... Like, the actors are playing different characters. Mm-hmm. But they're somehow translated to, like, what would a white slave owner woman be like in, you know, if you brought her forward, what would she be like? Well, she'd be this microaggressive bitch. So it's a horribly uncomfortable conversation. And then we continue to follow Veronica. 
you know, she's having a conversation with her daughter and then she has to go. Uh, she's given a drawing uh, but from her daughter mm-hmm. as a gift. And uh, she is in some wonderful hotel in a suite. And she there's obviously a conference there and she runs into uh, one of her friends and another friend comes over and they're going to go out for the night. And that is uh, when they part ways, that is when Janelle is in, well, Veronica is in deep trouble uh, because she is being abducted. And mm-hmm. it then all makes sense what the beginning of the film, sort near the beginning of the film, yeah. when, when um, new apparent slaves come, the man says, this is a reformer plantation yeah. uh, so now it makes sense what these crazy white people are trying to do yeah so uh, I want to get through in in just a few more minutes here so we don't run too long all the different things that we want to speak to in spoilers so what is it about the second act that you wanted to speak to I think the part that I loved the most about the second act was Veronica's friend that was played by, you love saying her name. Gabrielle Sidwede. Yes. Oh, the this woman was amazing. I think my favorite line was, I'm not going to go back and forth with you <laughs> about how this is a problem. Regarding, at the restaurant when yeah. they were put near, just at a crappy table. And she said, no, we're going to sit over there. And I just thought that she was just wonderful. Yes, however, yeah, I will say that was fairly tense for me because this movie had already set the stage of what happens if a black person speaks up and and so I, I had I was very unnerved by her quote unquote loud mouth and boisterousness and I was afraid something was going to happen to her. Especially when that guy approached who was so deliberately framed in such a way you never actually see him. You and I kind of differ whether or not something actually happened to her. Because I got the sense that she was being targeted and the way her SUV speeds off, it led me to believe that something happened to her as well as... Janelle Monet's character. Now, of course, Janelle Monet's character is a target because while she's not as boisterous as Gabrielle Sidibe, she is someone who, quote unquote, like is shooting off her mouth in a way in this, right? I and just don't think that that's the right phrase. It isn't the right phrase. That's why I'm quote unquoting it. I'm putting it in the context of what is already established in the movie, right? Because you're because again, the, in the movie in the in the camp. So you're speaking within the movie context. Yes, I am. Yes, absolutely. He she is someone who is literally on stage speaking out, and we have a plantation where what happens if a black person even utters the wrong word at the wrong time, right? They get beaten at best, and at worst, they get killed and burned. You know, I, I, there was a tension that is established there that I, I, it made me fear for Gabourey's character's life. My problem with the second act is, first of all, yes, it does try to, it, with its sudden cut it tries to get us off our footing and figure out like what's going on where are we but janelle monet like she wakes up and like 
her husband immediately says, hey, what's wrong? And she's, uh, he, he says, is another one of your nightmares? And she says, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then we're left wondering, oh, was everything we just experienced something in her subconscious that she or was... like a past life or is this a character she's creating? Because we don't know what kind of author she is. Right. And then she gets up and she rubs her the small of her back, which in the previous half hour or so... Janelle character had been branded in that very same spot. She said, ah, my back hurts. Okay. But it is all, it is all, uh, bullshit essentially Mm. because in the, in the actual framework of the plotting of this movie, when we're cut to modern times, we're actually going backwards in time before she got abducted and we learned that the beginning of the movie is when she arrived at the plantation after being abducted so if that's the case what the hell was that all about about her having a nightmare and what the hell was all that about about her rubbing her back because she like she hadn't been branded or anything and it wasn't a dream or anything that she had so that doesn't make sense or work for for me, and it feels like it's all red herring BS. Well, and she also, I guess, I'm a little annoyed too because um, at her conference, she says to one of her friends, "Our ancestors, like her grandmother said to her, our ancestors haunt our dreams to see themselves forward." So in my mind, I was like, "Oh my god, is this some kind of looper shit where they they take prominent?" amazing black leaders black leaders that will end all the injustices involved mm-hmm. you know against black people and and they take them and they send them back in time to get rid of them mm-hmm. you know and and then it turns out it's not that it turns out it's no there's here comes the third act and it turns out all this is is some goddamn assholes reenacting shit but literally taking like physically taking black people and treating them like slaves in the now time because we Mm -hmm. see a plane an airplane go by it's just so sick and just awful so let me come back to the reenactment point uh, in a minute the uh the other big thing about the second act that i had a problem with is jenna malone's character uh we, we we see her enter Janelle Monet's hotel room and she basically tours and spends some time alone in this space that she's invaded looking over things and she plucks her hair and um, drops her, uh, a strand of her hair on the bed. None of that made like, or have any point to it whatsoever because we think once we follow Janelle Monet to that back to that hotel room, we're going to follow her and making these discoveries and, and you know it's going to go somewhere. And in fact, it cuts away and only to have her, later on mention how her room wasn't cleaned mm-hmm. and and there was one other thing that was slightly off again oh something was missing from her purse that's it so all of this rigmarole is is played up 
with very little to no payoff. Well, I think the little girl in the hotel dragging the black cloth doll. It was very creepy. With a a ribbon or something. That was creepy. That was like, oh, we're, we're making a horror film and we're taking... It is an interesting concept with what they were playing with. But then they take this like previous horror element, which it's obviously a reference to the twins in The Shining. It definitely because felt shiny. It's in the hotel. But it didn't go anywhere with No, nothing it. really happened. And she just looked like a creepy fucking ghost. But obviously yes. she's not. Because what they're trying to do in this film is take real life shit and kind of fuck with you with the past but tell you that it's now. Yes. Uh, so that didn't work for me. The middle doesn't make sense. I explained all that sort of stuff. The, the quote in the beginning is, is way too on the nose. The, the last thing I want to speak to is why the third act lost me. Okay. And, and by the way, what we were just te- speaking about is the, is the thing where I said enters... You know, earlier referencing someone entering someone's dwelling. I was being very vague about it. That's what I was talking about. Jenna okay. Malone. But in the third act, okay, this thing. <sighs> You've got your hands on your hips. You okay. are like so annoyed. It all kind of unravels. Mm. Okay, so basically the third act is to me from the moment that she gets abducted in the SUV to the very end of the film. And, okay, so you you realize she was abducted and sent to this reenactment of, of, I can't remember what, what that's called, that era of the South. But at any rate, the Confederacy, the Confederacy, this With American Civil War. Yes, on the plantation. About and, 61 to 1861 to 1865. Okay. She's trying to escape. Her and a guy start to escape, but oh wait, no, we need to go back and get the villain's cell phone. It's like, no, just get the fuck out of there. You have an opportunity. No one knows anything's happening. You have at least a 10-minute head start here. Get the hell out of there. Find your way to civilization. But no, we have to go back and get a cell phone that ended up not working anyway very well and ended up not doing anything to save her from her situation. She had to save herself and get herself out of the situation anyway. And so I found that very annoying and very frustrating because all it was doing was delaying the inevitable and allowing for opportunities for people to catch them, uh, not catch them, but, you know, spot them and for them for complications to arise. And so I could really feel the gears turning in the script and it just... Uh, it really took me out of out of it. I can see where you're what you're saying, but you know, remember the first five minutes of the film, three of them tried to escape. It was her, the guy, and then the woman in the green dress. They did try to escape. That's why she got branded and treated just disgustingly in the first few minutes of the film, because they had tried escaping already, and then she kept quiet, and then. 
just to buy buy her time to try and figure out a different way to deal with this. And then when the phone rang, that's when she got her new inspiration. Well, and then when this other person died, that's when she got her new inspiration to escape. But she needed to have something new to help with her escape. And that meant letting people know where she was first. Yeah, I I don't buy that. Okay. I mean, like, it, it just does it didn't do anything. Like, she could have escaped and got to the nearest business or whatever. And we, you know, we learn, like, essentially, this plantation exists in the back of some sort of um, Civil War reenactment park where people go to to Ugh. watch people reenact the Civil War. You know, there is a nugget of an interesting idea there especially when paired with the William Faulkner quote, you know, that makes it very relevant today of, of, you know, we live in a time when all of a sudden uh, racists and, and the like feel emboldened and were emboldened by our nation's president. Right. And as such, there's been a kind of an explosion of, racial conflicts the the police conflicts as well lend to that but that doesn't really factor into this movie this movie is really kind of speaking to the past and how the past hasn't really gone any gotten anywhere um and and still is with us today and is kind of playing with the idea of this is essentially what these people want today the whole make America great idea, you know, and, and back in the day, things were so great and all that sort of stuff. Right. And it kind of explores also like the the idea of these monuments, these Confederate monuments, too. That's a that's another hot topic that's come up a lot, whether or not we take down these monuments and uh, made even more blunt when a particular famous monument factors in to a character's death. You know, you're with me. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. So it has these nuggets of, of, of interesting ideas, but it's just completely undone by all the other mechanics that and the, the, the con, contrivances that it jumps through. Well, I think I agree with you there. I think there's a lot of things that they were trying to achieve in a short amount of time that weren't really... Maybe if Act 2 was Act 1. Yeah. Like maybe if they switched places, maybe this would have been a better film. I don't know. But I know that usually when you mess with the chronology of things, you're trying to be more interesting <laughs> and engaging. There's, there's, yeah. there's supposed to be a purpose to it, but maybe that just didn't... I mean, the only purpose I can see it doing is like... A horror film is usually something supernatural involved or well, something... Sometimes. Or, or like a serial killer, and I know that's real, but you know, this was this is a mass thing that was allowed to happen that they've now turned into a horror, and it's not just like Twelve Years a Slave, where yeah, yeah. Twelve Years a Slave is just here's what happened. Although, but it's clearly um, aiming for some of that, right? Well, in terms probably, of its- but the the reason I bring this up is because in the cremation house barn type thing 
the, yep. the pro- she calls him the professor mm-hmm. at his death and yeah. he's been told to go and clean up in there and he comes across the crucifix necklace that the woman in the green dress was wearing and yes. he's not allowed to make a sound and he has to now deal with the fact that he is sweeping up the ashes of this person that he it clearly suggested had a he really, loved. Yes, he clearly know? had a relationship with this person. And um, the actor in question is Tangai Chirisa. Ah, thank you. Who is apparently an iZombie. Oh, cool. Now, the the way the, the camera work is done there, how it zooms away from him, but is like it's... Like they're walking away from him with the camera, but they're also zooming in on him. You know, that sort of horror. Is that an Alfred Hitchcock thing? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Well, it's a particular movement that's a camera movement that's with horror films. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, in those first 30 minutes, I was like, oh, maybe they're just taking, take a history element, slavery, and just shoot it like it's a horror, you know? Mm. And then the only other issue I had with the third act was when the FBI shows up. Mm-hmm. It's when the credits are rolling. Yeah. It's it's very, very odd how it's been shot. It looks like they're trying to advertise to people, the FBI will help you when you ask for help. It just felt really, really weird to me huh. because... It just it felt like a commercial for FBR. Really? Huh. I, I don't know. It just felt weird. Something about it was off. Well, there's something off about most of this movie. I will say really briefly, we have to move on, though. Yes, you said the chronology of the film. If it was arranged to a more linear structure, it would have been better. I would say, yes, it would have been better, but it would not still have been a great film because it does have all these other issues with it unfortunately but it would have been better yes but what do you think of the film antebellum if you have seen it feel free to email us at the gibson review at gmail.com now i think it's fair to say shanna that these directors maybe they show nuggets of promise but they're not necessarily going to make any favorite directors of all time lists not now anyway certainly not yours or mine but let's talk about who are going to be our favorite directors of all time let's move on to film faves film faves is our segment of the podcast that is inspired by something that used to be on the Gibson Review blog, wherein we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. We've spent the better part of the past three years going backwards through time, counting down our favorite movies year by year, as well as other topics and genres. But now we've done all of that. We finished all that back in the summer. So we're having some occasional aftershocks. We've had our favorite actors and actresses of all time and now it's time for our favorite directors of all time so shanna like this was quite the task i think because for me like let me tell you a little bit about my process and i'm curious about what it was like for you but for me it was all about okay 
going through all these lists we've made over the past 90 episodes, right? Been a part of 90 episodes. Who popped up the most in the lists I made, right? Because clearly one would think the directors who came up the most must be my favorites, right? Hmm. And that was an interesting exercise. But then it was a matter of, okay, like from there, like, it was a matter of paring it down even more. And and I did start with a, roughly a couple dozen directors through this process and trying to figure out, okay, this director, I love seven of their films and this director, I love four of their films. But like, does that mean that like, you know, in terms of them showing up on lists, but does that mean that I actually love them more? one more than another and and really kind of organizing uh, that list and there were some surprises of who ended up being strong contenders and who did not you know but it was a really difficult task you know but that was kind of the way i went about it now first of all i want to ask you before we get into your process your list does this list of favorite directors mean to you that these are directors that you are completely beholden to that have done no wrong in your mind that they are perfect well let's see here no i mostly believe in these directors there's maybe one or two that i maybe the bottom one only that I doubt sometimes and I guess I could say that when we get to it but definitely my top like my top five Mm -hmm. can't do any wrong in my eyes yes with what they create okay I am different in that I love these directors Mm -hmm. but they aren't a beyond a reproach they it's not like They've never made a bad movie in their career. And actually many of them, they've passed their peak. And the stuff that they're making now isn't nearly as good as the stuff that made them fall, made me fall in love with them, mm. you know? So to me, um, I will, I want to make clear, like, at least for me, like, I do not think these directors are perfect. I am not bowing down at the altar of these directors. (laughs) But in the grand scheme of things, in the history of cinema, these are my favorite directors. And and they have produced the most work that are favorites of mine. Why don't you share with us what your process was for crafting this list, whether or not it was challenging for you, and then segue into your 12th favorite director. This was really challenging for me. How I went about it was I looked at my flick chart and I looked at what movies I just I couldn't live without or looked for a variety of, you know, who stirs emotion within me and who do I visually... who. Whose vision do I trust? Whose stories are interesting? Who can't I? Who can I not wait mm-hmm. for them to get their next project going? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's kind of what I went with, and I did realize, you know, you speak about how we go through time and stuff. But I looked at my directors, and I was like, "There's one guy in here that is is from the golden age, and mm. and that's it." Mm. You know, and that's just the way it is. I mean, there was one. You know, there's one director that I love. Um, 
and I always forget the name of the film and my concussion does not help me right now. <laughs> the black and white amazingness with the, the guy at night. Oh, quite... Night at the Hunter by Charles Lawton. Yeah, I mean, he made one film and I would have loved to have seen more films by him, but because he only made one and he's passed. What? What? Yeah, yeah. No, oh. that's a really great point. Be- because mm-hmm. he's only made one mm-hmm. and he has passed, he's no longer with us. He's not on this list. So, but that doesn't mean that if there's a director I like totally believe in and they've only made one film, if they're still around, they're on my list Mm. because there's still more to come. And I think that they need the, I think they need their shout out, you know? You absolutely reminded me one important part of my process was I had to pare it down to directors who made at least four films that made past lists Hmm. four films of theirs had to make past lists because there's just too many otherwise there are a lot of directors that made three films on my list two films one film so i really that was the that was the floor was four films so that was an important aspect of how to whittle it down was it hard for you to whittle it down to 12 i had gotten to about 18 maybe 20 directors that i loved and it was hard to figure out my 12 Mm -hmm. it was hard Mm -hmm. and and that's okay i wanted to do a good job but you know as i was making this list my concussion then occurred so uh i hope i've done my best here all right so what is your 12th favorite director of all time my 12th favorite is christopher nolan because of and why are you looking at me like that (laughs) because i am very surprised okay (laughs) look it was between steven spielberg and christopher nolan and i I decided you know what christopher nolan he's pretty consistent in his goodness and steven Mm. spielberg had this like golden time and now i kind of don't like his films really well you like the post that wasn't that long ago yeah but i don't love it all right so um Christopher Nolan is my favorite, and uh, my favorite films by him are definitely Inception, Interstellar, and now it's Tenant. That's pretty exciting shit. Really? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I really like it. I love Christopher Nolan because I, I love his original works. I love what he's trying to create, and I love what... This is the guy that I would follow because of his vision and his execution of ideas. I love how he did an Interstellar. I know that you have issues with that movie. But every time I watch that movie, I think, oh, it's getting better and better as I watch it. Mm. And I feel the same way about Inception. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. Mm. And you and I have talked about how that has really infused into the culture. Like you can talk about Inception in the brain. There's one musician that took that i just don't remember who it is i just get really excited when one of his films come out like when Mm. we first saw the teaser to tenant and that it was christopher nolan i was like oh my fucking god i'm so excited (laughs) yeah we've got another one of another gem from christopher nolan so he's my number 12 very cool my 12th favorite uh, a very difficult spot to fill though uh because it could have been several different directors that took this spot it went to taika waititi oh that's awesome 
who has made somewhere around six movies. My favorite films of Taika Waititi's, when it really gets down to it, is What We Do in the Shadows and Thor Ragnarok. Although we have talked about Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit. Those are all great films. I haven't seen, I think he did a film called Boy that came out before What We Do in the Shadows. That one's a blind spot for me in terms of his career. But everything since, uh, I think, everything since What We Do in the Shadows I have seen. And I just really love his style of how he's able to infuse this this sense of humor that he has into everything that he does. You know, be it a vampire film, be it a Nazi film, a youth Nazi camp film, or even a superhero movie, you know? Uh, he is really fun and an exciting director that we have right now and i really can't wait to see what he has up his sleeves next you know he's in his prime and i think we got another 10 years worth of great stuff from from him for sure my number 11 is Taiko Watiti. Oh, it is? <laughs> yeah, really? it is. Um, my favorites are What We Do in the Shadows, Thor Ragnarok, and Jojo Rabbit. Okay. I I love the sense of humor he has, just like what you said. He's mm-hmm. really infusing. He's um, Kiwi, right? Yes. And so he's really infusing that mm-hmm. sense of humor into all his movies. It doesn't matter if it's what we do in the shadows taking place in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's Thor Ragnarok in another freaking universe on another planet. Mm. He's infusing that culture into just a little bit into everything that he's doing. Mm. And his sense of humor is rather odd and surprisingly hilarious. At first I was like, what the hell is going? Oh, that's funny. You know, it's, it's kind of a shock at first for me because I'm like, is that really funny? Oh, no, wait, that is hilarious. So I, I like the delayed response that I have with the humor most of the time. But Surprised to see him above Christopher Nolan for you. That's very interesting. Well, look, Christopher Nolan's awesome, but Taika Waititi makes me laugh. So All he's right. higher. Fair enough. My 11th favorite director of all time, John McTiernan. Not a name you hear often enough these days, I think. My favorite movies of his are Predator, Die Hard. Oh, that's great. The Hunt for Red October and Die Hard with a Vengeance. This guy who no longer makes films, I think because he went to prison, but that's a that's a Google search on its own. He, for a time, was one of the premier action directors. And he had such a um, tight, precise uh, style to his action directing. And, you know, as a result, he made some of the best action films ever, you know. Uh, And one of the most iconic alien creatures Uh, ever put on the film Uh, you have movies with bruce willis uh, and arnold schwarzenegger 
And, and then you have something really, like, really highbrow, like the Hunt for Red October, which you kind of have to pay attention to to get the stakes and the plotting and what's going on. And, you know, you got Alec Baldwin as the best Jack Ryan of all time, Sean Connery as a Russian submarine captain who's defecting. Great stuff. John McTiernan has some great work. Um, he's one of my favorites. My number 10 is the Coen Brothers. Really? Because uh, Fargo had Sucker Proxy, mm-hmm. A Serious Man, Barton Fink, and the only Western I've ever liked, True Grit. So those are my favorite movies. My ultimate favorite, you know, the first one I named Fargo. It's it's just, it's, it's such a bizarre ride. Mm. It's always a bizarre ride when you're with the Coen Brothers. A Serious Man is bizarre in its own right, and Hudsucker Proxy is is fascinating. And um, I'd love to watch Barton Fink again. We've only watched, I've only watched it once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just, I love all the actors and actresses that they bring to their films. I love the stories that they do. They're dealing with crazy shit, mm. and it all works. Hmm. It works beautifully. It's like a symphony come together, and I, I guess I'm a fangirl for them. Like hmm. I'd be like, oh, whatever you want to make, darlings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll throw money at it, and I won't question it because I know you'll pull it off just fine. And yet you've still not seen fan favorite Big Lebowski. I think it's just a time thing and a nervousness of watching something that everybody goes on about. You know how I feel when there's, there's, um, hype, hype. Yeah. I'm not really a fan of hype. I'm anti hype. Mm. My 10th favorite director of all time is Ryan Johnson. Uh, my favorite films of his, he's also done like somewhere around six films And my absolute favorite films of his are Looper, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and Knives Out. This guy is just really fucking clever. He's a very smart dude, and he he really takes the material, no matter how whimsical it might end up being or how, I don't know, sly it might end up being, he takes the material really seriously. I mean, I remember... Around the time that he was promoting Brothers Bloom, he was writing Looper. And one of the things that he did in that whole process of writing his time travel sci-fi film was he actually went and consulted with Shane Carruth, who had made one of the, was considered one of the most realistic time travel films, Primer. And to try to, you know, discuss time travel theory and what's, likely what's possible and all the kind of rules and stuff of of that and and i don't think like that's an exception to his career in any way I, i feel like that sort of methodical thought process is how he's approached every project he's made no matter if it's a small little high school noir film or even a big budget entry in one of the biggest franchises of all time the guy is smart his writing is absolutely remarkable is and 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 it works just about every single time he's only gotten better and better 
with each film. So, oh, and Knives Out is just like clockwork. The the precision in that script is remarkable. So he's a great writer, but he's also a great director. Very fun, very clever, and, and I love him. He's my 10th favorite director of all time, Ryan Johnson. I love Ryan Johnson, too. My number nine is one of those choices where I feel confident enough that anything this director were to make in the future I would be running tripping over my own feet to see Mm. and it's Eliza Hitman for the only movie I've seen of hers never rarely sometimes always and forever no I'm kidding never rarely sometimes always Uh, we've reviewed this film uh, a little while ago yep It made quite the impression on you, apparently. It's like falling in love. Mm. You know when you know you love a director and Mm. you know that you love their work. This film spoke to me on many levels. This film addressed many things Mm. and shone a light on shit that's been happening for years, things that you didn't even know about, things that you were not aware of. And I hope she makes more. And I really look forward to what else she has in store for us. Other things that she's directed that I haven't seen is Beach Rats and It Felt Like Love. Hmm. It'll be interesting to hear what you think about those films as well. I hope I like them too. Now I'm a little <laughs> nervous. <laughs> right. You know, put it out there. She's she's a bigger favorite than Christopher Nolan for you. I I am so ready to see what this woman has to make. Hmm. My ninth favorite director of all time is Akira Kurosawa. Yay! The famous and legendary Japanese director who my favorite films of include Seven Samurai, Ikiru, and 1980s Kahemusha. This guy is... There's a reason why he was known as the master. There's a reason why an entire generation of filmmakers, the new Hollywood era, loved and appreciated him and did whatever they could to help get one of his films made and financed. This guy is an absolute craftsman. He's made some of the greatest films of all time. You know, another one would be Rashomon. He's made movies that have been remade in America, right? Like Seven Samurai, which was made into The Magnificent Seven. Like, I think Yojimbo was also made into the Italian Western. I could be wrong, but I think um, it was made into the, the Italian Western uh dollars trilogy by sergio leone fistful of dollars i believe it has that same structure of a man with no name and such and then his when he transitioned to color like this guy showed us reminded us that color is a tool and when he did color film he used it so purposefully so intentionally His color films are absolutely stunning and remarkable. You know, every aspect of his films, the compositions, the acting, the the production design, everything is top shelf material. So 
Yeah, I've, I've, I'm a huge fan of Akira Kurosawa. I haven't seen all of his films. I've probably seen uh, somewhere around 10 of his films, and uh, it's remarkable stuff. Remarkable stuff. But again, my favorites are Seven Samurai, Akiru, and Kahe Musha. Yeah, you know, I, my brother shared with us that there's a video game that he's been playing that has a Kurosawa mode. Mm. And I think and I think the game is Ghost of Tsushima. Mm. Okay. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that just shows you how much power and reach absolutely. his mastery has. Absolutely, absolutely. So what's your eighth favorite director of all time? My number eight is the amazing, recently departed, Lynn Shelton. Mm. I love Laggies and Touchy Feely the most. Mm. She... She shows. That's what we. That's what, what we watched recently. We watched My Effortless Brilliant. Oh yeah, we watched that. Do you want to talk about that too? Well, can I gush over Lynn Shelton first? Why okay, not both? <laughs> Effortless Brilliance is not my favorite, um, <laughs> and I'm okay admitting that. All right. <laughs> you know, she shows Seattle, or rather, the Pacific Northwest, in such a relatable and beautiful way. Yes, you could have a shot of Mount Rainier or those stock type shots that you see in Grey's Anatomy of Seattle and the rain, uh, mm, the yeah. PNW area. But why not a shot of Queen Anne Hill as the sun sets behind it mm. or even Ballad Bridge when it's up or down? If you know Seattle, you'll know how authentic she has been with her shots. I love the, but beyond, you know, where she films and how she films it. I love the relationships she shows in her movies with others, character to character, but mostly also with themselves. Mm. Um, she has this wonderful theme. I was just really terribly sad when she died this year. And you'll see this relationship theme carry through in her TV shows. She's just really, really good at depicting relationships and speaking of relationships, my Effortless Brilliance mm -hmm. um, is about two friends, well, a writer who has not been very kind to one of his friends and his friend calls him out on it. Mm -hmm. And then we fast forward, I think, two years later to an opportunity that our main character has mm -hmm. to kind of visit with his friend make amends um, make yeah. amends mm -hmm. and you know there's that relationship thing again mm -hmm. like trying to make the relationship right and it's very it's not tense but it's very uncomfortable to watch mm -hmm. because feelings are still hurt even though he's trying to fix it, it you're still it's still going to be awkward for you mm -hmm. because the other person you know is obviously waiting to hear something or waiting to see their friend acknowledge their feelings in some way or yes. they're waiting to tell them something that has pissed them off for years um and that's what that film deals with and you never you never get what you expect out of it yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i really enjoyed that element of it mm -hmm. what she's good at but it was an uncomfortable watch just because of the nature of it fair enough what did you think of effortless brilliance oh I think you're a bigger Lynn Shelton fan than I, although I appreciate her greatly. I think thought that she was a great voice in cinema. 
that was silenced suddenly and terribly too soon. I, I think, you know, my effortless brilliance is an early film of hers. It's her second or third film. And it's, it sort of falls under the mumblecore movement of the aughts in the sense that you have dialogue that is very naturalistic and doesn't necessarily have a direction to it. So it requires some patience and, you know, people aren't right to the point or, or anything with the dialogue. And a lot of things go unsaid. Uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting on that level, but I, I definitely think that she grew. And uh, starting with her next film, Hump Day, she grew leaps and bounds as a storyteller. I, I, I uh, like her stuff afterwards much more. So, but my eighth favorite director, moving right along here, is Frank Capra. Oh, that's great. That totally makes sense for you. Uh, So you're starting to see directors from every era here. You know, you got the golden age, you got the new Hollywood and the more recent and even the modern age and the digital age uh, eras here. So Frank Capra is one of those from the golden age. He's a director that I've always adored, and he did a lot of humanist films. He did comedies and he did dramas. My favorites are Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town when it gets right down to it. I love, just like you, Arsenic and Old Lace and several of his other movies, but none as much as Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, especially the former of the two. And I think it's because they appeal so much to the sense of what is right and what is good, you know, versus what is greedy and what is corrupt in our society or in our governments. And Jimmy Stewart, Gary Cooper, both of these people are tremendous everymans that are so relatable. You can't help but root for them and want them to rise above the shit that they're being put through by other people, right, who have power. And so, you know, Frank Capra did, did this sort of stuff, but he was also able to do some silly comedies as well. And, yeah, he's he's a great one. I love and I've always adored since I discovered Frank Capra. So he is, as a result, my eighth favorite director of all time. My number seven is Pete Docter. Oh, yeah, okay, we have an animation yeah, director for here. especially Inside Out mm-hmm. Up. I'm pretty sure Soul's going to make the list. We saw a trailer for that last night. Did he direct that? Uh, yeah, that's his. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, don't make me second guess myself now. <laughs> <laughs> he also did Monsters Incorporated. Right, great stuff, yeah. He is so freaking good at grabbing em- an emotion... It doesn't matter which one. He might just grab all of them throughout the film and amplifying it and making us all feel it really within our hearts, with every fiber of our being. Mm, And that's his superpower with his direction. Mm. And, you know, every director is is known for what they do, right, and how they do it, Mm. how they execute it. And he is so good at executing emotions 
that emotions not only through the story but it's far his reach is far enough that it hits our hearts too you know you watch the first i don't know is it eight or ten minutes of up and Mm -hmm. i'm a bawling baby yeah legendary yeah just fucking amazing and you watch inside out and you learn how to talk about your emotions and how to be okay with your emotions and identify them and be able to really take hold of it and embrace it Um, i grew up with not being able to express anything beyond happiness Mm -hmm. and when i saw that i i more readily say i am very angry with you right now Mm. and i don't know what to do with that anger right now and i'm going to go away now and it's it it's very empowering and also uplifting and brings back hope and humanity his movies Mm. very cool my seventh favorite director may not necessarily bring about hope in humanity, oh, no. but he certainly had quite the streak from the 80s into the mid-90s, and that is Rob Reiner. My favorite films of his are especially Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally. But he had a huge streak in the uh, 80s that started with This is Spinal Tap. And <laughs> I, th- I would argue ended with The American President in 1995, which I think is still incredibly charming and a, uh, and a great romantic comedy and one of Michael Douglas's best films. Rob Reiner also, in all of that, he did one of the greatest Stephen King movies of all time, Misery. So you have, you know, uh, and Stand By Me is up there as well, another Stephen King-based story. You have a quite a variety here. You have mockumentary, you have comedy, you have coming-of-age story, you got horror, you have romance, and so that streak alone that he had there was strong enough to make him one of my favorite directors of all time. Now, he is someone who has gone past his prime. I don't think he's made a great film since The American President 25 years ago. And he has periodically come out with a, a new one and and, and um, you know they just don't measure up but for the gems that he created you know he really had some magic there and so he's up there for me he's my seventh favorite director of all time Rob Reiner I really love that that's great I really want to watch this is Spinal Tap now <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one all right, we're at the halfway mark, Shanna. Yeah. What is your sixth favorite director of all time? Okay. My only oldie. <laughs> it's Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, fantastic. For Rear Window, Psycho, North by Northwest, and Vertigo. But I feel like Rear Window and Psycho are my, my top favorites. Nice. His. He has a really distinct style, right? 
he has some cheekiness to it. He puts himself in there and he's like, oh, find me if you can. Like, where's Waldo? <laughs> His cinematography is very precise, very oh, just stunning lines with black and white and the shadows and the light and the highlights. Just divine. I like how his tension always builds. It either builds very quickly, like in Psycho, or rather slowly, like in Rear Window. But there's always this mystery element to his films that I love. And sometimes it's an obvious mystery, like who did it, or it's something that's going to unfold a little slower. Mm. It's always fun in some way too, uh, or funny. His movies are so perfect, I would never want them to be remade. Mm -hmm. I would only ever want them to be spruced up a little bit if, you know, you lost quality in the VHS process and now you're going to remaster it. That's all I'd want. I'd want like a little touch-ups for the greater experience. I don't want anyone touching his work, though, and mm. remaking it. That's fantastic. He is, of course, the master of suspense. Uh, just missed my list. But my sixth favorite director of all time is Robert Zemeckis, another director who has passed his prime and and I feel like should retire because his work for the past mm, two decades has not been top shelf stuff. And and Welcome to Marwin was a really great example of how how far he's fallen, but. This is the guy who directed Back to the Future, the entire trilogy. He did Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, I love that movie. And he also made one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time, Contact, with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. He had his streak also. And, and Romancing the Stone before all of that as well in 1984. So he had his period where he was firing on all cylinders and doing remarkable work that I grew up with and absolutely loved and adored. And so when I take stock of a director's work and, and the history of directors, he is definitely one that is absolutely undeniable. Uh, to me. So yeah, Robert Zemeckis is my sixth favorite director of all time. Oh, and he also did Forrest Gump. Also, can't forget that. That's a great choice, Lev. A wonderful director. My number five is Quentin Tarantino for, of course, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill, Django Unchained, and now Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I like how outrageous Tarantino is. He's the director where my jaw always drops most of the time when I'm watching his stuff and I don't realize that my jaw is like open and I have to kind of push it mm -hmm. close. That's the kind of feeling, that's the kind of reaction I have to his movies. He's, he's the one that I'm most entertained by. Some of his stuff doesn't hold up very well anymore, like Reservoir Dogs. Um, and you'll know what I'm talking about if you watch it again during this time, mm. this woke time of ours. Ah, the dialogue, you mean. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I love his revenge techniques. If he's ever making a film that involves revenge, I know he's going to hit it 
spot on, you know? Yeah. I really enjoy how he brings all the different actors and actresses together. And he makes a really good team with, with all the players that you need in a movie. My fifth favorite director of all time is Cameron Crowe. Another director who has passed his prime. I don't think he's made a great film since 2000's Almost Famous. But Almost Famous is certainly one of the movies that that is the reason why he's on my list. Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, when it gets right down to it, are my two absolute favorite films of Cameron Crowe's. But I also love the Seattle set uh, singles and before that say anything an iconic film of its kind for to be sure you know he he's another guy who was on this streak from 1989 i think till 2000 for 11 years straight you know he was making a movie once every two or three years and they were always really great films i don't know I don't know how to articulate it necessarily, aside from him having really great taste in his um, music supervision, his, his selections of songs in his movies. But he's he's really great at writing relationships, or at least he, he was really great. I think really once he remade Abra Los Hojos as into Vanilla Sky and he made Elizabeth Town, you mm. know, he really kind of lost something this magic that he had in his previous films. Um, but I, I can't deny the power of Cameron Crowe when we have, you know, those other four films in a row. And so he's always been a favorite of mine. And uh, as a result, he is my fifth favorite director of all time. My number four is a very special one. It's Zoe Lister-Jones. Wow. She only has one, and it's Band-Aid. But it is such a special movie to me in so many different ways. And if she ever had a GoFundMe page, I would make a plan to give her $100, which is a lot for me. Like, I would make (laughs) a plan to give her money so that she could make whatever she wanted. You know, I totally trust this woman. I'm very excited about the possibility of her making her directing more. Her personality, I feel like she would be a wonderful person to hang out with. (laughs) I really love her work and I look forward to more. Well, she was supposed to have a remake of The Craft. Uh, which, uh, you know, more than likely that's coming out next year. That's what opposed... she has directed? Yeah. My God, that's I will throw all thing. my money at her. Right. All of it. <laughs> right. So it'll be interesting to see what you If there's merchandise, I will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's some high praise in general. Uh, very cool. My fourth favorite director of all time, however, is Christopher Nolan. Now, Christopher Nolan, my, my, my favorite, my absolute favorite Christopher Nolan films are The Dark Knight and Inception, two of the greatest films of the past 20 years, without a doubt, right? Inception's one of the most influential sci-fi films 
of the past decade. I named it the greatest sci-fi film of the 2010s, and it was among my top 10 best films of the decade. The same could be said about Dark Knight in the previous decade in 2008. But, you know, let's not forget movies like Memento, you know, this brilliant oh, yes. movie told in reverse. Yeah, the thing about him, you know, is he very often has movies that deal with time in some way. You know, with Memento, you had a film about, you know, that that was told in reverse, right? Time, you know, a guy who had short-term memory loss, right? So he couldn't remember a lot of things, and it really affected his identity, his ability to remember much of who he is and what he's doing. You have Insomnia, which is about a guy who is in an area, in a place where it's light all the time, right? Hence the insomnia, right? It's, it's yeah. So there is no nighttime, you could say. Um, you have also Inception, where it deals with Whenever you go into a different level of dream, time is, uh, how would you say, a little bit faster than than reality, you know? It works and, differently. And, yeah. Right, yeah. And then you have Interstellar, where a guy has to make a journey into the stars, and time on Earth is going by faster than time, you know, that he's experiencing. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, you have Tenet, where it's about going against time. Inverted time. Inverting time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still have to rewatch Prestige. So I don't have a final opinion on, on the Prestige, that magician film from 2006. But uh, he, is, he is a great director. I don't think... Oh, and of course, Dunkirk messes with time because you have three different time frames you're working with um, also to complete that little thing. But I don't think his past four films are great. Hot take. I think he's had issues with endings with his films. Uh, the past four films, I think he has not knocked it out of the park since Inception, unfortunately. But he always brings something imaginative to the table regardless. And something that you're more than likely going to at some point drop your jaw and not, uh, and never forget. So, Christopher Nolan, my fourth favorite director of all time. That was really well said. I didn't say it as well as you. <laughs> and yeah, and he was your 12th favorite. Yeah, he's amazing. My number three, though, is Ryan Johnson for Looper, The Last Jedi, and Knives Out. Wow. He's smart. His movies are smart. His movies are always visually rich with the cinematography and colors and textures that are chosen. His filmography has variety. Nothing is the same. You know, if he wanted to tackle more time travel projects, we'd be okay because he's really good at it. You can identify his work pretty easily. Always has interesting stories beyond my three favorites. They're always well told. There's rich textures every time, all the time. And there is a mystery sometimes to it. So I feel like he's the the sci-fi fun version of Alfred Hitchcock, modern mm. version of Alfred Hitchcock. Huh. In his storytelling, he's pin sharp and 
really well executed. Well, very cool. I know you're a big fan of Looper, but I didn't know that would be enough to set him up among your top three. My third favorite director of all time is Quentin Tarantino. My favorite films of Quentin Tarantino in particular are Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, and Inglorious Bastards. Mm. Tarantino is also a director whose work I don't always love. I'm not a fan of Jackie Brown, Mm. no matter how hard I try and no matter how great that cast is. I did not enjoy Death Proof much, per se, and I did find Hateful Eight a slog. But, <laughs> um, but everything else he's done is absolutely remarkable. And no matter what, whether or not I like it or not, he's always doing something that nobody else is doing, right? Mm-hmm. He's always, he has a voice for 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 crying out loud you know uh he's got a vision and that there is nothing bland about a quentin tarantino movie no one could ever accuse him of being boring and he's he's similar to scorsese in the sense that he is incredibly literate and he is an interesting dude to listen to talk about film he just has he has a different style about him a certain bravado maybe about how he goes about it you know and his films reflect that too but it is he is like a cinematic melting pot in his work and i absolutely i absolutely love it and he's still a guy that i'm excited and interested in what he makes next and once upon a time and in hollywood is no exception that very interesting film and we reviewed that last year i can't believe that he wasn't your number one uh, for as much as you love him what is your second favorite director of all time my second is greta gerwig for lady bird and little woman whoa whoa my mind is blown here your second favorite director of all time has only made two films i really in the past i don't care i don't care three years in the words of ricky gervais i don't care wow i just love how she portrays women, especially in Lady Bird. It's like she she has this ability to show all the experiences a woman can have, and therefore the characters are real mm. and super relatable and not just these little blonde bimbo shells, you know? I, I know that's not every movie, but... There's complexity. Yeah. When she takes on Little Woman, it makes sense for her to take that project on because, you know, there's it's involving four sisters and an aunt, a mom, with each their own experiences as well as their own expressions and how they interact with each other, not just who they are, but how they interact mm. is what Greta Gerwig is really good at. At the end, we are all the same. We have all had the good, the splendid, the bad, the ugly, the nasty experiences. And she shows us how that can all tie us together or bring us together. Mm. And I just, I really love her work and I look forward to what else she's going to make because I don't think I can live without her. 
Like, mm. I, I really feel like she brings relatability and closure at the same time with her films. Wow. That is beautiful. That is awesome. Uh, well, thanks, love. You're welcome. Huge surprise. Huge surprise. I figured maybe she was, you know, in the bottom six somewhere, but that's all right. Very cool. My my second favorite director mm-hmm. of all time. Do tell. Has definitely made more than two. Okay. It is James Cameron. The futurist James Cameron. He of Terminator. Wow. Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, True Lies, and Titanic, and and that Avatar movie as well. Aliens and Terminator 2 are my absolute favorites of his, Mm -hmm. the two sequels that he has made. Time will tell if he's past his prime when when he does finally release these damn Avatar sequels that he's apparently devoted the rest of his life to making. But Well, good um, for him. Wow. All right. We'll, see. well, that's a discipline. Come on now. Fair, fair, fair. Even even something like Avatar, which I think like is probably his worst script, even that is pushing the envelope. If you've ever read The Futurist by, I think it's Rebecca Keegan, you know how hard this guy works to push the envelope in every single thing he does. Uh, he is absolutely remarkable and, and one of the visionaries of the field. You know, he's really made so much progress in the field that we wouldn't necessarily have many of the films that we have today if it weren't for James Cameron. That's not hyperbole based on what he did with The Abyss, what he did with Terminator 2. Those two films especially really advanced the medium uh, and what was possible. Jurassic Park was possible in part because of what uh, James Cameron did with those uh, two films. And Aliens, uh, arguably the best film of the entire franchise, is one of the most thrilling sci-fi action films of all time. I could go on about this dude. He's remarkable. He has some of the greatest films of all time. Love him. He is my second favorite director of all time, James Cameron. All right, Shanna. here we go. Oh boy. Okay, your Who's favorite number one. Your favorite director <laughs> of all time. Very curious if it's not Christopher Nolan, if it's not Quentin Tarantino, who, Shanna? <laughs> Who has Could this position? It possibly be. It's Denny Villeneuve. Whoa. For Arrival, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, and Enemy. Enemy. Enemy is one of your favorites. It's, it kind of is. Really? It's odd, and I need to watch it again, but it was a surprising film for me. Well, yes, it is a surprising film, but I never would have expected it to be one of your favorites of his. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, it's not as favorite as Arrival. I mean, that's like one mm. of my all-time favorite films. Oh, we'll get to that uh-huh. in the future episode. Teaser. <laughs> anyway, I look, I love, and Dune's probably going to make it on there too, given that we've seen the trailer and that looked amazing. Oh, man, yeah. I love his ability to tell the story of a sci-fi or mystery genre. He brings unique concepts to 
beautiful fruition with mm. himself and his team. He manages to bring together in perfect harmony to create something that's so well executed. I would trust this man with any sci-fi material because I know he could bring it to life and just cut out all the rubbish and keep it focused and just really give us exactly what we want. And he's just amazing. I, I would love to meet this person one day. Mm. He is truly remarkable and one of the, uh, certainly one of the greatest directors we have working today. So, Shanna. You didn't mention... Hold on, hold on. Let me just <laughs> mention something else. Rob Reiner had five films on my list uh-huh. in all the episodes that we've done. James Cameron had six movies on lists in all the episodes we've done of mine. Robert Zemeckis had seven movies, especially if you count the Back to the Future trilogy, mm-hmm. on my list of all the episodes we've done. The next one, my number one, had 14 movies oh, wow. that made lists of all the episodes we have done. My favorite director, I know you know who it is, of all time is Steven Spielberg. I knew it. Yes. I was like, wait a second. You haven't mentioned your yes. good friend Steven yet. My good friend, my pal. <laughs> um, of, you know, yes, 14 movies. But my most favorites of all are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, E.T., and Empire of the Sun, in no particular order there. I think in the past decade, the only two films of of truly of note that he's made are Lincoln and The Post. I do think he is a director that is past his prime, but he's he's one of those directors where... You know, he's he's had 40 plus years of films he's made and the the 70s, 80s and 90s, especially as some of the most iconic films in American history, you know, and and you'd be hard pressed to kind of decide, like, if you were to just parse out one of those decades and, and only that decade's body of work could survive, like, which one would you pick, you know, and like Mm -hmm. his, his work is, is so part of our, the fabric of our culture. He, he's, it's influenced pop culture to so much extent. He's, he's pushed the cinematic form, the medium in so many different ways. And he's done so many different types of films. He's done period pieces, war films, uh, sci-fi films. He's done, I don't know, God, he's done dramas. He's done, I think he's done comedy. Has he done comedies? He's tried doing comedies. 1941 was a comedy that didn't work out very well <laughs> for him. But usually he's better off if he he integrates comedy into his stories, right? Mm-hmm. And he does that very well. And he has these family dynamics of a lot of father and son films, very touching, very moving, I- iconic works 
I could very clearly spend a half an hour just talking. We actually have. We've had a Steven Spielberg episode. We have, yeah. We counted down our favorite Spielberg movies. Was that the Ready Player One episode? It probably was. Mm -hmm. That movie is not one of those favorites, however. But, yeah, he's undeniable uh, for me. You know, I grew up with most of his career, right? I was born right after 1981. So I've ex- I have grown up with 1941. I mean, um, I've grown up with all but four or five of his films. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. In in my lifetime. Yeah. You know, yeah, undeniable. Steven Spielberg. Perfect choice. My favorite director of all time. Now here's the thing, Sean. I want we don't usually do honorable mentions, right? Because that's what the twelve is for. But I wanted. I was curious. Were there any directors that fell off your list that didn't quite fit in your list that you wanted to give a shout out to? Golly, it'll be hard to see because I haven't weeded them out from the original list, but who have I got you? Jordan Peele, Mm -hmm. Garinda Chada, Patty Jenkins, Judy Delpy, Karen Kurosama, Mira Nair, Steven Spielberg, Joss Whedon, James Brooks, Spike Lee, Gilmore Del Toro. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was basically the ones that I really love, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a couple of yours just made it outside my list. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, Alfred Hitchcock, Coen Brothers. I, was, I felt pretty sure that those were going to make the list, but they just did not quite make it. Charlie Chaplin also, which yeah. uh, I did a feature on him recently. If you haven't seen it, go to thegibsonreview.com to read that. Ain Lee, surprisingly, was a strong contender for my list. Didn't expect that with That's Crouching awesome. Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Brokeback Mountain, and a couple other films. Life of Pi. Surprisingly, James Mangold almost made my list. Oh, he have Walked the Line, The Wolverine, and Logan. And Identity, a very underrated thriller. Richard Linklater uh, mm-hmm. was there. Martin Scorsese, Edgar Wright, and as you mentioned, Grinachado was a strong contender. Penny Marshall, my favorite... Female director of all time. We had that episode a couple years back where we looked at that. She was just shy of um, of making it onto my list. Big Awakenings, A League of Their Own. Those were all, that was a great streak for her that I loved. Pete Docter is someone uh, that made it your list. One of the only animation directors that was in contention for me. Surprised that Hayao Miyazaki did not make your list however because i think you might have more affection for him than me he is pretty awesome and he does have fantastic female characters in his stories uh zayna mao who made half made up half of our favorite chinese movies list (laughs) he was a contender as well and wes craven of course um so many others uh but those were the cream of the crop for me curious viewers who are your favorite directors or is there any that we did not give a shout out to that would have made your list feel free to email us at the gibson review at gmail.com whoo shannon that was a big one that was a big one but we finally got through it now currently for us it's 20 to 1 in the morning 
yeah. as we are recording this. Yes, yes. A, a few days before this episode hits your ears. Before we talk about the future of the movie lovers, what people can look forward to, Shannon, why don't you talk about where people can find you online? You can find me politely at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography on Instagram. And then on Flickchart, you can find me at Spellbinding A, not A, but just the letter A. <laughs> yeah, so go to the Gibson Review dot com for all things movie lovers and gibson review you will find articles on there i as i mentioned before i recently did a survey of charlie chaplin's full featured films go check that out at the gibsonreview.com please let us know what you think about that uh you can go to facebook slash the gibson review follow on there or most actively on instagram at the gibson 99 i do polls there of people's favorite films we did two polls most recently for one for 2015 favorite movie of 2015 and that movie was mad max fury road and for your favorite chinese film crouching tiger hidden dragon beat out drunken master for that title so i think pretty soon we'll have on there a poll for your favorite director feel free to check that out and probably after that favorite 2014 movie as well so participate in the fun uh beyond that you can find me on flickr also at the gibson 99 now what in the world will you find us doing in the next episode of the movie lovers well it will either be bill and ted face the music us catching up with that movie with film faves favorite soundtracks or we'll be covering sofia coppola's newest film on apple tv what is that movie called shanna on the rocks starring rashida jones and bill murray and marlon wayans and if we do that film we'll do probably our favorite movie years that is to be determined but you will find that episode on tuesday october 13th keep an eye out on instagram that'll probably update it be updated and announced on there once a decision is made in the meantime keep loving the movies this is jeff and shanna saying good night